And please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We will be looking at verses 17 through 30 this morning. Now, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we've heard all about what God has saved us from. From sin, from death, alienation, separation. We heard how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and how God made us alive together with Christ. We were slaves to sin, slaves to Satan, and God's Son came down, as it were, into the slave markets to redeem us, to buy us back at the price of his own dear blood. That is an astounding and foundational truth. That's the gospel. But... Our salvation isn't merely God saving us from something. God is also saving us for something, leading us to something. God has plans, and we've seen it already in Ephesians several times, that we no longer walk in futility as we did before we came to know Jesus. God has called us from the very beginning of this book, from before time, to holiness. God has created us, made us a new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. This is what God is saving us for, for himself, that we would glorify him. Now this morning, we are going to look at one of the clearest descriptions in the Bible of how radical a change of a lifestyle this means for us. How are we to walk now that we are Christians. Now that God has made us alive, how are we to live? What does that practically mean? Why should we walk differently? And how? That is what this passage will teach us this morning. Let me pray before we read. Lord, teach us now. We have your word here before us and we thank you for it. But we cannot benefit from it unless your spirit teaches us, opens our eyes, leads us, and guides us through this passage. We pray that you would help us to receive it with faith, and that we would be changed by it and grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. I won't be reading through the whole chapter, just through verse 30. This is God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt 
through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Amen. Paul has just finished talking about God's great plan for us as a church in general terms. The church, he said, is a body. We are a body. We are one. We are united to one another. We are yet diverse. And he goes into this description. But as he says that we are a body, he also says that we are not just any body. We are Christ's body. You, brothers and sisters, together are the body of Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing to consider, isn't it? As a body, we are to be unified. As a body, we are to work together. As a body, we are to grow and mature together. But as the body of Christ, you see, that's where we get our pattern. Christ's DNA, if I could put it this way, spiritually speaking, is our DNA. We are being transformed into his image. His life, you see, provides the church with life, for we are in him. He is our life to live as Christ. And so we are to grow up to be like him. Jesus, you see, is not just the savior of the church. He is also the model of the church. He is the head of the church. He doesn't just let us develop however we, we might and just set us free and see what happens. He has a plan for us, maturing us into conformity to himself. So Jesus, you see, is at the center He's at the center of everything. He's at the center of this book. And the first three chapters of this book, which talked about our doctrine, Christ was the center of. What God did to save us, Christ was at the center. The next three chapters talk about the practice. And you'll find that Christ is the center of that too. He is the savior. He is the model. He is how we are saved. He also shows us how we are to live. This truth, you see, is in Jesus himself. And when he says that in verse 21, that the truth is in Jesus, he's speaking not just of doctrinal truth, but especially practical truth. How we ought to live. What does it look like to be God's child? 
Where in all of creation could you find a good example of this? It is in Christ himself, the Son. So we are, we are conformed to him. He is the model, the pattern. He is our head. And this means, if we are to do this, means knowing him, for one. So you look back at verse 13, going back to last week. It says that we are to grow as a body in our knowledge of the Son of God. And this involves growing up to be like him. In verses 13, verses 15, we are growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, the plain fact is, brothers and sisters, that Christ's lifestyle and his character was very different than yours was when ours was, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and walked according to the course of this world. Drastically different. So that means a drastic change must take place in our lives if we are to be growing in maturity, growing the right way. So therefore, since we are to grow up in all aspects into Christ, Paul tells us here in our passage, no longer to walk as the Gentiles do. This is really the point of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? That you are not to be like them. In God's kingdom, this is the way we are to live. First, Paul takes a glance back at how we used to walk in the next couple verses, verses 17 through 19. Now, there's a lot in here, but consider it just for a moment. It is a sad, sobering condition. And we could spend a long time doing it. It's really, in a few verses, a summary of Romans 1. All smashed in here. But he says very briefly that our whole old life was sick from head to toe. We walked in futility of mind. There was something futile, something empty in all our former reasoning, all our pursuits, All our passions led to nothing. They were futile, vanity. All our former goals, our purposes, our pursuits, the total direction of our lives were towards something that we could not keep, something that would not last, something we could never obtain. Our understanding, verse 18, was darkened. We were excluded from the life that God gives, which is the only life there is. We were ignorant, and our hearts were hardened. Now, if you were to look closely at this verse, you'll see that all these things are connected. They go, if you read it backwards, you would see how one thing leads to another. Our hardness of heart leads to ignorance, which leads us away from God, which darkens our understanding, which makes all our walking empty and useless. And this whole condition was just getting worse, you see, becoming more and more callous, unfeeling to sin, unashamed of it. In verse 19, we see where all this was leading, that we were doomed to become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In short, we were hopelessly lost and getting worse, accelerating towards hell. We see briefly here that it's not just we who are changing now, we who are Christians, but that everyone on earth is changing. 
No one is being stable. Everyone is going down one of two different roads. When we say total depravity, we don't mean that everybody is as bad as they could be. Just that they're bad in every part. They're not as bad as they could be yet, but one day they will be. They are also being progressively changed unto conformity with Satan. And that is a scary, terrifying thing. If you are outside of Christ, you cannot continue just the way you are. You're not in control. You are a slave to sin. And it is leading you away. Now is the day of salvation. But there is another way where we are also being changed. Being connected, united to Christ. But we see here what we used to be. We are reminded of it just for a moment. So Paul can go into what we must change. The Christian life, you see, is different. Christ sets us on a different course calls us to deny ourselves and to follow him. And it's interesting how he says this. He says, you did not learn Christ in this way. Not simply learn about Christ. We learned Christ. But Christ is not a book that we read. He's not something we study. Really, He's not a thing. He's a person. So how do we do this? How do you learn a person? Paul is saying that Christ himself is what we are learning, who we are coming to know. We are growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. We learn Christ. And not only that, Jesus is not only who we learned, he is also the teacher. Verse 21, assuming you have heard him and were taught in him. So you see, when you came to know Christ, it was Jesus who called you. You may have heard your neighbor, your friend, a family member, a a pastor share the gospel with you. But whenever someone is drawn to Christ, it is Christ speaking to your heart, calling you by name, and you are his sheep. You hear his voice and you come and you follow him. And you have been taught in him, it says here. He brought us into union with himself, and we are taught by him in his word. He is also the one whom you come to know. And if I could say this simply, your whole life, your whole Christian life is all about Jesus. It is all from Christ, and it involves knowing him personally. Not knowing the Bible, not being able to win every Bible trivia game, knowing a person, the Lord Jesus. If ignorance and and darkness characterized our old life, our new life is now characterized by being enlightened by Christ and knowing him. For truth, you see, is found nowhere else. Truth, verse 21, is in Jesus. And knowing Jesus means also knowing him as our Lord and King. It means learning about his character and what pleases him, learning about his laws and how to live in his kingdom. Here, when it talks about this 
uh, the truth being in Jesus, it's speaking especially of that, this true way of life, the true way to live. Jesus said something similar when he said, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Learn of me. Look to me. Watch me. I am the way that you are to live. Now, of course, there are things that are very distinctive about Jesus' role in this world that we, although we're called to imitate him a little bit later in Ephesians, we cannot imitate. We are not called to imitate him as the Savior, but we are called to imitate him as a child of God. And brothers and sisters, God has delivered you from your former darkness and transferred you into his glorious kingdom of his beloved son. And so there was something old that needs to be left behind, something we need to lay aside. And there is something new that we must put on in its place. It's like a man who spent years in prison. There in the prison he wears the clothes of a prisoner. But when you leave the prison, one of the first things you do is you, you take those clothes off gladly. And you put on new clothes that fit with your new lifestyle as a free man. Even in the movies, the first thing a prisoner does when he escapes, he gets those clothes off. He doesn't even want to be identified with that former life. No one walks down the street wearing their old prison clothes. So why should you? Why should we? We have been set free too, haven't we? We have a new identity. So we lay aside the old things that identified us with the old life and we put on our new clothes. So the Christian life must involve these things, both a putting off, a putting to death, Paul would say it in other places, putting to death of the old man, being made alive. Here's this putting off your old self, which... Verse 22, belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this, this reminds us of the language of God creating Adam. That God created Adam in his own image. And that image, while it it continues in every, every human. It has been shattered like a ruin of a once great city. You can still see parts of it. You can kind of put it together at the best moments, but still a ruin. God restores it better, better than it ever was. That's how he will restore it. But it is restoration in true righteousness and holiness in conformity, not with Adam, but with the last Adam, with Christ, the new man, and we are to be new men. So this is the doctrinal foundation of what he's about to say, the principles uh, that God has changed us and is moving you from your old lifestyle to a new one. From verse 25 on, we will see several 
concrete examples, not an exhaustive list of what the Christian life looks like, but several concrete examples of what this change of clothes, this change of lifestyle looks like. And so I want you to notice that in almost every example, there is a putting off of something, something negatively stated, and then there's a putting on of something in its place. And then, thirdly, a reason why we are to put this on. First, God tells us that we are to lay aside falsehood. And really, in our passage this morning, the thing that's focused on the most is our mouths, our tongues. It's interesting that God starts here. James uh, has something interesting as well to say about this, that if you could tame your tongue, you'd be a perfect man. But no one can tame the tongue. Our tongues were made for a, a reason, and that reason wasn't just so we could be better than animals and communicate and build things together, build towers, build cities, things like that. Our tongues were made to worship God. Our tongues were made that we might know one another, that we might encourage one another, edify one another. That's why you have a tongue. God calls us to use our tongues the right way. He calls us to lay aside falsehood and speak truth to one another. Why? Because we are members one of another. You see, back in verse 22, the old man was characterized specifically by deceit. Jesus said that the devil was the father of lies and that there was no truth in him. By contrast, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So we have been created in the likeness of God, and he cannot lie. So we are called to speak truth to one another. That is one thing that following Jesus must require. So you see, the church is a body. We are members of one another, and lies and deceit are destructive to unity. Now, Paul is quoting this command, actually, from Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 16, which tells us how God wants his people to dwell in Jerusalem when he comes into their midst. Now, I want to read to you what God said a little bit earlier in that chapter from Zechariah 8, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. You see, God wishes to dwell in our midst. And he wishes that when this time comes, that he would find us be a people of truth. He's changing us to fit with his character. The truth is in Jesus, it just said. The truth should be in us as well. God's city is the city of truth. We are his body. So this part of, the, of being his body, this new clothing that identifies us as belonging to Christ is truth. Next, verse 26, Paul says that there, there is a place for righteous anger. But if we are angry, it must be holy anger. It says, be angry and do not sin. 
So it must be for the right reasons, to the right amounts, and directed to the right place. If we, if we make an error in any of these, our anger is mixed with sin. And I can just summarize it and say that your anger is always somewhat sinful, as is everything that you do, even when you're worshiping God in your best moment. It's mixed with sin. But this anger is, uh, is misdirected when we have, it's too intense. We have the, too much anger or personal feelings mixed in with it. Or when we are angry for the wrong reasons. Or more angry about our own, the wrongs done to us. Jesus was angry when he saw the poor abused. Jesus was angry when he saw his temple being converted from a house of prayer to a robber's den. And he drove them out. And his emotions were always directed to the the right way, impure. So our, John Calvin says that our emotions are like this muddy foam. And Christ's emotions were like a powerful, clear stream. Always the right amount never mixed with sin, always for the right reasons. So there are times when anger is not sinful in and of itself, but we need lots of help in this anger. We are so often too quick to anger when God is slow to anger. So Paul puts limits on our anger. He says, first, be angry, but do not sin. Look carefully at Christ's patience. Look at his self-control. Notice how he turns the other cheek. How willing he is to give up his rights for the sake of others, for the sake of mercy. Notice how quickly he forgives and evaluate your emotions by Christ's character. Secondly, do not let the sun go down on your anger. I, th- I think that this is, should be taken proverbially, not literally. We have to finish, resolve this argument right before the sun goes down. But we are to keep short accounts, very short. Do not let a root of bitterness grow. We are to seek peace earnestly. Pursue peace with all men. Why do you have to pursue peace? It's as if it's running away sometimes and you have to chase it. But be active in seeking out peace with your brothers and your sisters. Be quick to repent, quick to forgive. This is an especially good rule for husbands and wives. Do not hold grudges against one another but seek peace and reconciliation. And thirdly, do not give the devil an opportunity. When we allow ourselves to be carried away in our anger and our grudges, it gives the devil an opportunity to to make this root of bitterness grow into a tree that won't be rooted out very easily. I've seen people who have lived their whole lives in bitterness, consumed by something that happened Years and years ago. We need Christ to root it out and not let any more weeds grow in the garden of our hearts. Do not give the devil an opportunity 
to cause you to stumble. Next, verse 28, the life in sin is characterized by stealing. God's people are to lay this aside. In its place, we are to work hard, doing what is good. Not only so that we don't have to steal, but that we can help the needy. That's, that, you see, is a 180-degree turn. Instead of taking from others, we should end up giving to others. It's a totally different lifestyle. Now, thankfully, outright theft is comparatively rare, although often when I lived in Taiwan, my umbrella would be stolen many, many times as I left it outside in the rain. But we also steal from the government when we cheat on our taxes. We steal from our employers when we're lazy and do poor work. We steal from those who work for us, in a sense, when we don't give them a fair wage, or we try to cheat them out of a bad deal so that we might gain to their loss. The follower of Christ, though, is not to be like this. We are to seek to glorify God in our work, and our concern must never be merely about advancing our own position. We must love our neighbors as ourselves and seek to provide for those who are needy. Next, Paul moves on to our emotions, from our emotions, from our hands, to our mouths. Again, the Christian speech, like our hands, is not to be useless or destructive to our neighbors. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. So our language is is to be characterized by purity. We speak with a certain accent. I have a little bit of an accent. Some of you all have accents from different areas, and we, you can sometimes pinpoint where someone is, where, where someone is from, rather, by wh- how they speak. You know, oh, this person's from Australia or England or, or, or wherever, from the north, from the south. We are to have a heavenly accent. That when we speak, people know where, something is different about this person. The way he speaks is different. When we get our language from scripture, not just quoting scripture, but that we sound more and more like Jesus. That's what we want. When people to hear us, they know right away This person's different, and the more time they spend with you, they realize that you sound a lot like your Lord Jesus. Edifying. Not wasting words. Doesn't mean that you always have to be serious and never tell a joke. But building up others, loving others in your speech, truthfulness, patience, all characterized by the tongue. We are to use our mouths to build up one another. My mom used to say, I'm sure your mom probably used to say this a lot too, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. You know it, right? Everybody's mom says that. And brothers and sisters, consider your speech. Is it filled with gossip about others? Are we more quick to tell each other bad things about people you don't like? rather than good things? 
Is it filled with complaints about others? If it is, you can see how this destroys unity. How often we've been hurt by what others have said, and yet we are so quick to speak badly of each other. This has no place in the Christian life. Our mouths and our gift of speech is one of the greatest gifts God has given us. And it can be either used as a tool in God's hands to do remarkable good or the devil's instrument to damage someone for life. You've also heard the saying that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's totally backwards. Words are much more destructive. We are to be different. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Observe how he talks. Observe how everyone around him is bettered every time they're around him. Now, brothers and sisters, our words, our thoughts, our actions are all made to glorify God and to help our neighbors. This pleases God who is changing us into his image. He has redeemed us. And remember, this means that you are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. You are God's temple. He has placed his spirit in you. In you. And the Holy Spirit is above all other things, he is holy. So there ought to be no unholiness in our thoughts, no unholiness in our speech. Jesus also calls him the spirit of truth. And so we must speak truth with one another. He is also called the comforter. So our language ought to be comfort and build up one another, not tear one another down. You see, this, these attributes that Paul has been listing here, they're fruits of the Spirit worked out in life. They're Christ's own character copied in, our, in ours. The Holy Spirit is also the one at the beginning of chapter 4 who has caused us to be united as a body. So he says, preserve the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So whenever we act in unholiness, whenever we speak falsehood, whenever we destroy the unity that he has created, whenever we break others down rather than build them up, how do you think he responds to that? This grieves him. God has placed his Holy Spirit in us, and yet we cause him great sadness and grief when we continue in our old lifestyle. We are called not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, as a side note, this is one of the clearest places that we're in the Bible where we can see that the Holy Spirit is not just some impersonal force equal with the Father and with the Son. We find him a little bit harder to relate to because we understand the term Father. We understand Son. Spirit seems a little more impersonal, but here you can see that he is a person, that he can be grieved. And if he can grieve, it means he loves. For those who grieve the most are the ones who love the most. And the Holy Spirit loves you. 
The Holy Spirit loves you just as much as the Father loves you, just as much as the Son loves you. And he wants what's best for you. And what's best for you involves walking in his ways. This expression about grieving the Holy Spirit comes from Isaiah 63.10. It speaks about how God brought up his people from slavery in Egypt. And it says this, a very comforting verse. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Isn't that sad to think? God rescued them. He afflicted in all their afflictions. But brings them out, loving them that much. And yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, don't let this be said of you. God has rescued you from slavery too, hasn't he? He has, rest, he has brought you to newness of life. He is afflicted in all your afflictions. But let us not grieve him as they did. Let us not rebel against him and grieve his Holy Spirit who has rescued us. God has been so gracious with us. He has paid such a high price to purchase us from slavery. So how can we wear our, continue to wear our old prison clothes? Does it break your heart to know that our sin grieves the one who has loved you and who gave himself up for you? If it does, then examine your heart. Repent today. Let us return to him, for God has called us to something so much better than that old, dead, dark, fruitless lifestyle that we had in the past. Let us repent and cling to God that he might change us into his likeness and that we might be pleasing to him in every way. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy in rescuing us. We are stubborn people like your people in the past. But we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would make us so sensitive to the Spirit's leading that we would recoil from anything that displeases you. Lead us in the right way. We're still not there yet. Continue to work in us and change us. Make us like you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.